Hello and welcome to the Sense and Sensitivity Podcast. I am Hannah Stella here with my co-host, Cece Shia. Hi, Cece. We are talking about body image and kind of growing up as a woman or as, I guess, a girl who becomes a woman and all of that stuff this week. So at the end of this kind of intro conversation, we'll have a little bit of an in-depth trigger warning for you guys. But for now, Cece, are you still in South Africa? What's going on? I am. I'm in the Kruger National Park region, but at a private reserve called like Sabi Sands. And it's been really fascinating because, I mean, as a follow up to last episode about like just the disparity in income that's here, I feel like yesterday we went on like a safari that was more like a public safari. And then this today, we've been going on a tour that's a bit more like a private safari. And it's been weird to see the difference in which like even nature is extended differently to people depending on how much you pay. Yeah, I know of the like sands. I think there are a few. There's Sabi and lions and stuff. I really wanted to go, but I've never done any of those safaris. Never been to Kruger, but I can totally believe that because when I've researched doing safaris, a lot of them do seem to advertise like this is very private land, so you'll actually see the animals. Yeah, because in like Kruger, which is like the public kind of national reserve, you do go around, but it's more of like about serendipity. It's if you sh- run into them, you run into them. Whereas in the private reserves, it's a lot more like, oh my God, I mean, I think we're paying right now like 600 US dollars per night per person to stay here. And at first I was like, oh my God, this is like an insane amount. But it also includes the safari, includes like some, you know, wine, includes meals, etc. So half of the battle is just always like planning the safaris, right? And when you plan the safaris here, it does seem like you're able to just like see I don't know, like I saw a leopard sleeping in a tree, which is crazy. And I saw like lions napping in tall grass. I mean, it's so cool. But it is something that like in Kruger, it's harder to find and it's harder to like see because I think there's just like different rules around. I mean, in the private reserves, you can kind of go off road. And I kind of hate it because it's like if you pay more money, you can like go off road. And that just seems to be the a theme in life, right? Is just that if you pay more money, you can go off-road. I agree with you. I think it's sort of the same in a way. Some of it's probably also traffic, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's just like more cars. Exactly. And that I assume really scares the animals. So I think part of it is that as well. Mm -hmm. And we kind of have that, I think in the United States, like when you used to go to national parks, it just wasn't as popular of a vacation. And now that it is, if you go to a national park, it's so crowded. You have to get a hiking permit like months in advance for certain trails at like Zion and stuff. And then now there are all of these kind of national park adjacent private sort of hiking experiences, like glamping experiences that have popped up, I think, to fill the same need. So it's a worldwide, I don't, I mean, I know it's not the same, but. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely onto something. Like, I recently read this article about how, like, tiny houses, like, in the middle of nowhere were the most profitable Airbnbs. So it seems like everyone is trying to get away. Everyone is trying to, like, go to these tiny houses. And that's just kind of where our tourism is going. Totally. I I mean, I think so. I think that everywhere in the world has gotten very crowded, which isn't a bad thing. I'm not complaining. But I think that that now the new luxury isn't being in Paris, being in New York, it's being alone. 
Yeah, it's definitely space, but it's been a great experience and I'm really, really excited to, oh my God, tomorrow we have to, our wake up time is 5 a.m. So this, the staff is apparently going to come to our rooms at 5 a.m. and knock on our doors until we get up to go on our morning safari. So that's what I have to look forward to. I mean, I think it'll be worth it. How is your jet lag? Are you still at least like waking up really early or does that feel like 5 a.m. now? It definitely feels like 5 a.m. now. I feel like after okay. it's been like a week. So I've heard that the morning safaris are like the best ones, though. Because Me too. Out, like, I know. I've never done it. I've been to South Africa twice and I just never got it together to do the safari. I mean, at waking up at this time, it is like a lot of logistical planning. Anyway, how is New York? I'm so excited to go back. New York is good. It's been alternating like really nice out and then freezing cold. Mm. I have just been living life here. Nothing too interesting to report, or I guess nothing too interesting that can be reported on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, next time in future episodes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'll tell you the story when it's over. (laughs) I can't wait. So I've been in New York for a while, and it's, it's been really nice, actually. It's been very relaxing. I've mostly lived in New York since I was 18. And it's just, you know, I've had a lot of turmoil and a lot of change in the last year. So it's been really nice to be back and see my friends and be in familiar places. I know you and Callie are friends. And I saw the article in the post that she did about leaving for LA. Did you see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She talked to me about it afterwards. She said she was interviewed by the New York Post and was like, I talked to them about this article about like leaving New York and she was really worried about how she would turn out understandably because I do think the New York Post can sometimes twist things. Totally. I thought she sounded really good and I found it. I was sort of laughing when I read the article because I found it very relatable. But I was like, oh, I guess New York really is my home because I've moved away temporarily or permanently a couple of times for varying amounts of months. And I've always felt that way outside of New York. And so I don't know. I'm going back to the boat later this week, but I am I've been very glad to be here and I'm excited to sort of be back this summer and stuff. I think yeah. I'll be back at least for the summer. Wait, I'm so excited to have you back. Yeah, I think also people hate on like New York in the summer, but I actually think New York in the summer is a perfect time to be back. People are like, oh, you know, it's so hot, blah, blah, blah. But I do think New York in the summer is one of the best times to be there. I like to be hot. I mean, it's if I'm going to be hot or I'm going to be cold, I want to be hot. Like there's a reason that I was like, okay, I'm going to move to the tropics. And it's because I would much prefer being hot. My dad grew up in Western Kansas, like near Colorado, where it's very, very, very cold. And when I was a kid growing up in Texas, I would complain that it was hot. And he was like, no, like I've been cold enough times in my life. And I was like, that's so stupid. And now I'm like, I have been cold enough times in my life. Like, I'm happy to be in New York in the summer. I'm happy to be in a trash oven. It's fine. Yeah, no, I love it. And I think there's something like so beautiful when it's so hot and everyone's like out in the parks and outside on the sidewalks. There's just something beautiful about the energy of the place. And I do feel like, you know, traveling recently and talking to other people about where they're from, I have come to also realize that I just love New York so much as well. And when people are like, oh, I think I ran into someone who was talking about why they couldn't live in New York. And for all the reasons they couldn't live in New York, I was like, but that's exactly why I love New York, you know? Totally, totally. It's not for everybody, but if it's for you, 
There's no place like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So do you want to kind of introduce more about this week's topic? Yes. We were just talking about sort of body image, exercise, all of that stuff, just from our perspectives and experiences. So a trigger warning for this episode, eating disorders, some fat phobia, fat phobic language, not CC and I being fat phobic, but generally quoting that stuff, some mentions of childhood abuse and neglect and general childhood trauma. I think that should cover it. So if those topics are upsetting or triggering to you, thank you for listening this far and we'll catch you next week. Yeah, absolutely. And we just thought this was really timely to talk about just because even with the Oscars, right, there was a lot of speculation about like which, you know, actors and actresses. Yeah, we just talked about all the time on the online discourse. And it just seems to really be something that a lot of us are thinking about. And in some way, I think by medicalizing it, we're able to find a new way to police people's bodies. And we kind of just wanted to talk more about just this weird world that we live in where there is so much policing of bodies, especially like women's bodies, as Hannah and I will talk about. Totally. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode and I hope you had a wonderful week. Yeah. And see you next week. See you then. Okay. So the first thing I was thinking about with respect to body image is just like, when did we first become aware that we had bodies? Because it's definitely not something that I was born with. It wasn't like I knew I had a body from day one and then knew that there were expectations for how it should look. I think that happened probably when I was like, I don't know, I want to say eight. And it was probably due to like awareness of ads and media and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with a mom who was plus size, who was very, very plus size actually for the for the 90s, and a grandmother who was certainly anorexic. And so I think I was pretty aware of it. I don't remember a time that I was not aware of my body and my body image. I have a very distinct memory of being probably four or five years old. And you know how how little kids sort of naturally have um, like a convex tummy, like yeah, every baby I mean, has a, a tummy. Yeah, yeah, no, I, in hindsight, I know. But I remember I was at my grandparents' house, like sitting on a stool at my grandmother's kitchen island. And my aunt came up behind me and like sort of gave me like a, like a two-handed hug around the waist, not both arms, but like kind of grabbed my waist. And she wasn't being any sort of like negative way. It wasn't about my body. It was like she just had come into the house and she like put her hands there and then gave me a kiss on the head. And I remember very distinctly thinking like, oh no, I have this like big stomach and she's feeling it. That's my, that's my first (laughs) cognitive memory of that stuff. Oh my God. That's kind of, yeah, that's kind of shocking to have that happen to you at, at like such a young age when your body is just like a kid's body. I feel like, you know, children are just supposed to be kind of chubby because they're growing. They, you know, haven't hit puberty. I think so my first brush with being aware of how my body was was probably there was a school trip in fifth grade, I want to say fourth or fifth grade, and we were supposed to hoist members of a class on a pulley. So, you know, pulleys make people lighter, right? Or I guess weight, whatever the weight is lighter on the other side. And I was a little bit 
I mean, this is probably surprising now, but I used to be kind of a tall kid for the class. Like I used to be not the shortest kid now, even though I haven't grown since seventh grade. And that's probably why I used to be tall, but now I'm so short. But my friends in that class were all a lot smaller than I was. And I remember being very, very self-conscious about sitting on this pulley thing and thinking about the fact that members of my class were pulling my weight, like through a pulley mechanism, definitely. But I was like, oh my God, I think I'm bigger than the other people in this class. And will the people pulling on this pulley system, will they know? Will they realize? And then will they feel that I am somehow heavier? And that was just like a really, really horrifying experience that set off a lot of issues with my body image and weight going forward, which also kind of stems from, I realized later on that like my mom and my grandma have like a lot of unhealthy body image issues as well. But I didn't really experience it until I was like, you know, eight or 10 when they started telling me things about like, oh, you know, I shouldn't finish my entire bowl of rice or that I should work out less because they really were into the kind of like skinny look and they weren't such a fan of muscle definition. Yeah. They, they were not a fan of muscle definition, which is unfortunate because I mostly take after my dad and he is, you know, he's kind of, he has pretty good muscle definition. So I, I I look exactly like him, which is weird to say, but I also kind of have this like body type and just, you know, not skinny calves. And my grandma was always like, would always just like call my calves and thighs like too big, even though it was mostly muscle. This is so, I feel so annoying saying this as like a, a thin person. It's just a fact. I have to get extended calf boots, which actually makes it very difficult, like very annoying to buy to buy footwear, which is a small complaint, a very, very small complaint in terms of how difficult it is for women with different body sizes to buy clothes. It's really wild. Yeah, I have to do the same. Uh, I have to kind of mostly or get like a larger size of boots so that the calves do like go around my own calves. My shoe size is pretty small. It's like five and a half. So like the bloggers I did follow who were like, trying to show petite clothing, et cetera. They were my height, but that wasn't really the difference there. And when I would take their clothing as suggestions, especially for stuff like boots and then try it on myself, it really is like a sad and horrifying experience when you realize that you're like, oh my God, this like doesn't fit in this way. And you kind of just like blame yourself rather than the oh God, shoemakers. Yeah, I think they're just shoemakers. Mm -hmm. Rather than the brands, the shoemakers for not making things in more like realistic sizes, right? Like totally. Well, I think it's because it's like, this is what's available. And in the moment, it's just like, when you think about it intellectually, you're like, oh, it's bullshit. But in the moment, it's just like, oh, this is the thing I want. And it doesn't work. Yeah. I think all the time about like, how early this must have started, right? For our moms, our parents maybe even, and like their moms. I kind of remember, you know, my hearing overhearing my grandma tell my mom one day that she was running too much. She was running too much and it was making her legs bigger. And that was not a good look. And that was just like what I saw, right? Like I'm sure behind every interaction between your grandma and your mom, there are tens if not hundreds of similar interactions behind all of that. And 
I used to like be really resentful that my mom would make comments about my weight or, you know, try to encourage me to eat less or things like that. But now I kind of see it as like, I would have been way more confused if she hadn't carried that into our relationship, right? Just given what she grew up with. I also think it's an interesting thing psychologically, and I don't know how you feel about this. I think part of it with mothers can be a projection of how they feel about their bodies and about society. But I think the unfortunate reality and a reality that shouldn't be, but one that's true, is that if you are a conventionally attractive and thin person, especially as a woman, your life is easier in a lot of ways. And I think that sometimes, though it comes out poorly and really, really negatively affects your daughter's body image, I think that sometimes women are trying to save their daughters from the experience of existing in a society that punishes girls for not being like sort of impossibly thin and in shape and like fitting into this ideal. Yeah. I think that realization that, you know, you might resent your parents a lot for the ways in which they were not the best or not the most understanding about things like this. What helped me reorient it in my head was even, you know, my parents wanted me to pursue certain careers, like certain jobs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they pushed me in certain directions with my life. And sometimes people do ask me like, well, why didn't you just push back? And it's like, you know, one, I can't really. But also, two, I realized that culturally they were coming at it from an angle of wanting to make sure that I was set up for the most success. And it was in their view, like certain careers, it was in their view, like being a conventionally, you know, attractive person in society, because I do think they saw how hard life could be sometimes. And they didn't want that, even though it kind of came out Mm -hmm. in not a great way. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not saying that the psychological effects are worth it. I guess I'm just saying to have an empathy for the moms and grandmas and aunts and whatever who do this. I mean, I think my mom had a lot of psychological issues, I guess I would say, a lot of issues with depression and bipolar disorder and I think borderline personality disorder as well. But she also was a larger person. She's not tall, but she's she actually had weight loss surgery when I was in my 20s. And so now I haven't seen her in, oh God, I haven't seen her in five years, I think. Wow. Maybe I saw her like three years ago, three and a half years ago. I haven't seen her in a very long time, but she was definitely, is it straight sized? Is that the correct term for being able to shop at stores that don't specifically like, aren't specifically size inclusive? You know, the fact that I don't even know kind of just shows the limitations and the narrowness of my own perspective when it comes to this. When I worked in apparel, we called it straight size and plus size, but I don't know if that is a dated term or an industry term or something that we that people use. But when I worked in apparel, straight size was zero to 12 and plus was anything 14 or above. And then petites were usually came in zero to 12 and just had slightly smaller measurements for each size and also like shorter lengths. Anyway, but my mom had a lot of 
psychological problems and she was really mean and she was very mean to us about our weights and our food. And I think also because of a lot of her personality issues and my dad's alcoholism, I grew up in a quite neglectful household. Like we never, we never had breakfast except on like Christmas morning or something. We never had breakfast as kids. And I don't know if that was a dieting thing. I think it was actually more of just a neglect thing. My mom was very aware of what everybody was eating. And part of it, I think, was that she's inclined to be cruel. And part of it, I think, was that I can't imagine. My mom grew up in quite a wealthy enclave of Dallas. My mom's parents had a lot of money. I did not grow up with a lot of money. I grew up in a house where our water and electricity would get shut off all the time and our phone, and we really didn't have any money. But I had a little bit of exposure to that culture through through my grandparents or perhaps a lot. But my grandparents weren't paying our bills. I don't know if they gave my parents money sometimes. That's I'm getting off track. But I think that a lot of my mom's sort of cruelty to us was also because she was reacting... And cruelty, not just about the food, like cruelty as a person was that like, I can't imagine how cruel the world was to her because there's so much messaging now, thankfully, where women are sharing their experiences and everybody's saying like, oh, we do need to be kinder to people about their bodies and the way their bodies look. And there was none of that when she was growing up and it was in movies and TV shows. And I just can't. I can't imagine how she was treated. Something I think about a lot because I don't I don't have a relationship with my mom and I have a lot of a lot of trouble empathizing with her in very many ways, but it's one of those things where in this way and not just in this way. This is this is a paradigm through which I can find some empathy for her that I think I should probably let extend into some of her other behaviors. I don't know. Yeah, and I think this like ability to find empathy for at least parts of your parents, even if, you know, there are things that they do that are unforgivable ultimately. But the funny thing about Chinese culture is that it's like a very common thing when you see someone that you haven't seen in a while. And to, you know, the first thing to say is like, oh, Nishola, which is you got skinnier or Nipanga, or you got fatter. Like this is a normal greeting that you say in China. Does it have a moral... Like, does it have the heaviness to it that it does in Western culture? You know, like if I see somebody, regardless of whether or not I should, if I see somebody I haven't seen in a while and they say, oh my God, Hannah, you look so skinny. I think of that as a compliment. And I actually can't imagine somebody commenting the opposite way just because it's sort of considered so rude. And I don't think either of those things really should be true, but I I think that is the American like cultural context. Is that the same or is it is it just a fact? It's both factual, but also it depends on who's saying it, right? Like it could be someone saying like, oh, you got skinnier and that's a good thing. Or it could be a worry like, oh, you got skinnier. Now I'm worried about you. And I think so much of this is caught up with the fact that there was like the cultural revolution in China when my parents were growing up, when my definitely when my grandparents were, you know, adults. And that period was I think just like both a period of extreme lack and mixed in with, you know, afterwards, it's China kind of became like pro-capitalist and it's already a society that judges a lot of people, I think, just by nature. And 
judging how someone looks is like a very, very normal thing to do in Chinese culture. And like you always talk about how your relatives are doing. Any kind of like cousin rivalries are really, really exacerbated because you would just always be compared to your cousins. And I remember one time I was visiting one of my cousins and, you know, she's a girl as well. And I think sometimes when people see like two women together, sometimes I feel like they just want to pit them against each other or compare Mm -hmm. them. It's horrifying. But her mom would actually like make comments like, oh, why can't you be more like, you know, Cecilia in a certain way or like your thighs are a little bit too big or like just like these things. And the next time I saw her, she had lost so much weight and I was like actually concerned. Like she, I, it just like did not look like, like a, you know, she just like looked much more like small and diminished and almost with that kind of anorexic look almost where it just like, it was not good. And I was like, oh my God, I was horrified that maybe I had a part in that. I understand what you're saying exactly, but I don't think that's your fault. That's that's not fair to put on on the children. Yeah. But I, I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. I'm not invalidating your emotions. I'm just saying you shouldn't put that on yourself. Yeah, thank you. And I do think like, you know, this like kind of being pit against each other oftentimes, like I also remember, you know, my grandma making comments about like certain relatives to be like, oh, what? you know, they look really good. Maybe you should eat less rice to like look like that. And those things really stick with you in a certain way, but it is like out of this weird cultural context that I still really want to respect. And I still really want to respect their background and where they came from. But at the same time, like, oh my God, that is, those things are still not good things to bring into the world and like to children. It's true. I mean, it's, you want to respect people's cultures and and where they come from, and it's you can't expect people to know more than they do. Speaking about American cultures and and things like that, not I don't I do not mean that in some sort of a like <laughs> colonialist sense. I mean that just in the sense of talking to my own like grandparents and even people who are just from a different part of the country who have had different experiences. I I do really believe that it's like. You can't expect people to extrapolate from experiences that they haven't had and haven't been told about. But at the same time, it doesn't lessen the hurt and the harm that can be caused by their actions or or comments or behavior. Yeah. And I think like for me, I realized, especially in college, because like college was when I actually developed an eating disorder, whatever your relationship with like food and your body is, it can be made worse just by other stressors in your life, right? Like I didn't realize that could be the case until I did get to college and I feel like so much more insecurities flared up and I had so much more like feelings of being an outsider in ways that I hadn't had before. And that definitively did trigger something in me that made me want to control my life in a way that maybe I felt like my I couldn't control my life, so therefore I could control what I eat. But then I don't know. Like that that was really like the worst period for me. And I remember even going to see a therapist about it. And it was a horrifying experience now because I was like telling her about how I had issues with control over food. And like sometimes I would like look at something and want to eat half of it, but then like eat the whole thing. And her advice really was like, oh, have you thought about maybe you know, when you're eating like yogurt and granola, like 
more yogurt, less granola. And I was like, okay. She was basically telling me how to control it more because the ultimate issue that she saw was like that I was overeating, not like the mentality behind the overeating and restrictions. Yeah. Eating disorders are psychological. I had an eating disorder in college also. I went to treatment for like quite a while, but never didn't go to a real residential treatment program. I went mostly to intensive outpatients. But I do think that there is is an issue with with that. It's like it's eating disorders are are very often a combination of the body pressure, but it's about control. And I think mine personally was also about that I'd I'd sort of grown up as I kind of touched on on not in an imperfect situation. And I I think I was just desperate for for somebody to like realize that I needed help. I don't know. Yeah, I think oftentimes, right, like, I think it can kind of be similar with self-harm is like, there is a part of doing it to yourself, but is associated with wondering if anyone will, you know, when my cats like lick off a patch of their fur, I know that something is up, like they are engaging in activity, right? Like they are engaging in activity that like, should signal to me that something is wrong. And I'm not saying that you know, an eating disorder or self-harm is the same as your cat licking off like a patch of fur. But there are certain similarities in like how we respond to things. And even though it can feel like we're only trying to do it to ourselves, I do think part of it is also trying to reconnect to the outer world and like signal physically that something is wrong. Because oftentimes we can't just sit there and like mentally make someone the outer world realize that we are going through something and maybe need help from a third party because like, you know, we just can't telekinesis like that. I think that's true. I think it's a difficult thing. It's hard to just be like, well, just have great body image because there's so much in the world that just tells us like, actually, you should have horrible body image. I had an experience when I worked, I worked in apparel. I I did wholesale sales for sleep and intimate. So I sold pajamas and bras and panties to retailers like Amazon and Macy's and and other department stores, things like that. And whenever we would have market week and like the models would come in, I, I'm not body shaming the models at all. They were absolutely beautiful. But that was the first time in my life that I realized that actually like how airbrushed like all of the images and stuff that we see are. And I was like, oh, okay, like my understanding of what's normal. And we talk about this a lot with like filters on social media and everything. It's like you don't realize that it gets in your head how distorted the images are from from reality. Absolutely. And now with like, you know, with Facetune, you can like Facetune your body, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can make your legs longer, all of that. And I don't think I realized how distorted my sense of bodies were, but I definitely like stumbled onto very pro Anna Tumblr and like was weirdly obsessed with those images and like, you know, the like, you know, current way you're like ultimate way you're like goal way. And I just, I can't think about how many hours I spent doing that and looking at like hip bones and thigh gaps. And I tried so hard to have a thigh gap back in college because again, I think I was just so insecure about being surrounded by also, I think probably girls who had eating disorders, but like they were just so beautiful and so 
tall and so thin and also so rich. And I think that like part definitely impacted me where I felt like inadequate in so many ways, but it wasn't like I could become wealthier. It wasn't like I could I mean, I try to become smarter, but you can only study so much. (laughs) Thank you. But I mean, I did suffer a lot of like academic setbacks in the beginning of college. And I think that really fed into this sudden feeling of inadequacy on so many levels. And I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, I can't control my grades that much. I can't control, you know, my family background that much. But, you know, the one thing I can kind of control is what I eat. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a tough thing. What is your like relationship to exercise been and what is it like now? For me, I actually feel like, of course, I have had periods in my life when I take it too far, but I've personally found that for me, whenever I'm exercising consistently, but not excessively, it's very helpful to my like sort of body image and, and sense of my physicality. Yeah, because it does feel like it's helping in the moment, right? Like no matter what you're feeling and no matter where you want to take it, whether you want to take it to be like, okay, I want to exercise to get skinnier or I want to exercise to be healthier, like no matter what your goal, exercise accomplishes that. And I think that's why it can be a really deceptive solution to body image issues because you think like, oh, it is making me healthier. But when I was in college and like kind of at the peak of my disordered eating, I think exercise really was a way to encourage it along even. Like it made me feel like I was doing something that was bettering myself when in fact I was honestly just making things worse. And it wasn't until like, I think you can have an unhealthy relationship with exercise, which exercise is healthy, but you can have an unhealthy relationship with it, if that makes sense. Of course. I think, yeah, I think that's Certainly true. And I think that's pretty widely known. Yeah. But it's so like alluring to fall into that, right? And like go into over-exercise. It wasn't until – so I tore my meniscus and had to get surgery and then – yeah, both ACL and meniscus. And then I had to get surgery. And during that period where I couldn't exercise, I was so depressed that I – I don't know. I just like wanted to cry every day because like I had so much pent up like mental anguish that the only way I could get it out without exercising because I couldn't exercise at the time was through crying. And I realized that there's kind of this like relationship between physical movement and physical activity and like mental, I don't know, chaos, mental anguish Mm -hmm. that you can use exercise in a healthy way to like deal with your mental anguish, mental chaos, but you can also kind of channel it very unhealthily, but it looks the same on the outside, which is kind of the dangerous part, is that it's hard for anyone else to know whether you're doing it in a healthy way. And it's even hard for you to know sometimes. Totally. It can be really easy to lie to yourself about those things. I think that something else that can be a struggle is before when I was like, when my marriage was in a very bad place last year, I had been sort of trying to lose weight before that, which I am at a place in my life where I can do that in a what I believe is a healthy way without sort of with just sort of paying attention to my hunger cues and trying to make like healthy choices and find a balance. And then from the stress, when I get stressed, I often just find it difficult to eat. And I I was quite thin when I got divorced. And it's actually like sometimes you get to a body that's not natural for you in maybe 
an unhealthy way, but not an intentionally unhealthy way. I didn't have an eating disorder. I wasn't trying not to eat. I was actually concerned. I was like, oh, I know this isn't a good weight for me. But then I gained a little bit of the weight back and I was happy. And then I was sort of stressed in a different way. And I was on the road a lot and eating a lot of fast food. And I gained a lot of weight. Not a lot. All of these are relative terms, but I gained some weight. And I think what's been difficult for me sort of recently is like reconciling also just I got so much positive attention when I was that thin. Oh no, like from whom? Everybody. I mean, everybody was like, you look great. You've never looked better. Like everybody in my life. All of the men for sure, but from women, from everyone. And I don't, I I actually like, I appreciated it, especially because I was having such a hard time. I was kind of like, at least I look good, (laughs) which is horrible. But yeah, I think it's hard not to sort of want to always be in the place where you felt the best physically, even if that wasn't a place where you felt even remotely good mentally. I don't know. Yeah. And I think there's this difficulty with just being in your body, right? And like, Sometimes you do feel comfortable in your body. Sometimes you don't. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to figure out how to align the two, especially when what you feel best in mentally is maybe not what is like most natural for you physically. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier to like chase the, then I should change my body rather than then I should change my mindset. Because I think, I do think mindsets are probably, and like your perspectives are the hardest thing to change. I think it's a lot easier to change your body than it is to like change your mind. Yeah. And it's hard also, this is less of a body image thing and more just of a personal discussion. I was showing Cece earlier, I have this condition that's coming from stress. I'm I'm working on it. I'm seeing some doctors and stuff, but it's called dermatographia. And it is where basically as I understand it as a non-medical professional, just a sufferer, it is where you like are over, you're having like a histamine reaction to stress. And so if you even like lightly scratch, it creates a hive in the shape of a scratch, which can be kind of cool. I drew like a heart on my arm earlier. That was, that's cute. But it's really difficult. I think so much of who we are is how we're perceived as women. And it shouldn't be that way. But I certainly identify with the way that people perceive me physically. And it's been very difficult emotionally. The histamine reaction also makes my face, it's not swollen now, but it makes my face sort of swell up. Actually, this eye is a little bit, sorry, you guys can't see me. I'm so sorry. But it makes my face swell up in a way that maybe a lot of other people don't notice, but I notice. And it's really hard when you're in a difficult period of time and going through something to feel like, oh, even my body isn't within my control and not even like the physical size, but just everything, you know, I haven't experienced like hair loss from stress, but I think that that would feel the same way that you're like, I'm going through so much. And like, the only thing I have is myself. And even like my physical self is betraying me and my mental self feels like it's betraying me because I'm so upset all the time and I don't want to be, I don't know, just a trauma dump for you guys. I think this privileging of physical stuff over mental stuff as it's just kind of in our history, right? Like I think one of the most interesting parts that I learned in torts, which is about like, you know, you can sue for like intentional infliction of emotional distress, like negligent infliction of emotional distress as lawsuits. Can we have like a little heart to heart about the negligent infliction of emotional distress after we finish recording? 
Absolutely. (laughs) Wait, you might appreciate this. So I actually took family law with a professor who was divorced. And it was actually kind of a dramatic divorce because I think her ex was found maybe dating like a grad student. Oh, yeah. I hate it it when that happens. (laughs) Right? Yeah, me too. So there was a very dramatic divorce between the two of them. And she taught family law, but then would say things like, you know, someone was bringing a divorce lawsuit, but then also wanted to add on negligent infliction of emotional distress. And the court ended up saying, oh, you can't add negligent infliction. You could add intentional infliction, though, but like we won't allow the addition of negligent infliction. And then she would say things like, but isn't marriage just a series of negligently inflicting emotional distress on one another? And I was like, the whole class would just be like, oh my God, okay, okay. Like speaking from experience, uh, like, like- Was she being, like, did she have like a funny tone or was she like- She's kind of like, I think she presents herself as a lot more serious a lot of the times, probably just due to wanting to be- Seriously, as a law professor, as whatever. In academia, in a world where, like, oftentimes if you're a woman professor, they do not take you seriously. So she does, like, I think she is funny and she does maybe is even aware of how it's happening. But the delivery is always, like, very dry and very serious, which I think adds to, like, the emotional impact and the learning, honestly. Like, I'll always remember that of the class. This is sort of an aside, but I often have a way that I tell jokes where people can't tell if I'm kidding. And I think people also do this to a lot of women. And I'm like, people are like, oh my God, that's so funny without even intending to be. And it pisses me off like nothing else because I'm like, yeah, she was fucking being funny because she was trying to be like, you are such an idiot. Like women, a lot of the time are actually way funnier than men. They just aren't making like fart jokes. Dumbass. Yeah, you kind of have to like have an elevated experience and like an elevated delivery. And then oftentimes some t- people like think that it doesn't land, but whatever. That's like a them problem, not a not an us problem. But yes, one of the things in the class that we learned was just that in order to bring actions for like emotional distress, you have to allege or, you know, plead some sort of physical consequence to it. And I think part of it was just like verifiability, right? Like, you know, can we really verify distress back in the day? And they were like, no, so let's add some like physicality to it. But it's, you you just see this like privileging of like, we don't care about emotional distress until it gets to a physical manifestation, which is really like by that point, it's almost like, I think it's, it's way later than we would want it to in our ideal society. Right. What do you think, really, really changing gears here, what do you think of Ozempic? So I actually didn't know much about Ozempic, but then I started reading a lot more about it in preparation for this episode. And okay, so for people who are like me, and then you're like, what is Ozempic? Ozempic is a diabetes drug, and it lowers blood sugar levels, but in off-label use, it also suppresses your appetite and like slows your stomach emptying. So it's kind of a miracle drug for weight loss. Like you can eat like maybe one meal a day and like you won't even feel hungry. So you just like go through life just eating less and like feeling less hunger. So in some way, like it kind of reminds me a little bit of why some people like Adderall, right? Because it does suppress appetite. Like I think so many people who have issues with bodies, like love the use of these drugs where you do kind of like dissociate a little bit from your body and don't Mm. feel things like hunger. But there's something kind of dystopian about the fact that we do now have this drug that can control our body in that way. Yeah, I think it's a little bit and this is 
I think when we discuss these drugs a lot of the time, like this is a very important diabetes drug. And it's also, I'm not trying to like correct you and come in and like over, it's an important diabetes drug and it's an important, you know, people who are larger fat. I've been told that we're allowed to say fat because fat is a descriptor, not an insult, which I completely agree with. But, you know, fat people have often, like it's very difficult to lose a large amount of weight and sustain that and keep the weight off. And if for people's lives, these drugs are making them better, and it's certainly helpful for diabetics and pre-diabetics and people who need help with their weight control, but it's become it's become so trendy, and that's like a really crazy thing, right? It's like crazy. Yeah. It's I mean, it's not crazy because it's like how can we blame any woman for doing what's going to make it easier for her to function in a society? that does not always make it easy for women to function. I can't find fault in anybody taking these drugs, but I also agree with you that it's like a little wild that, I mean, I know people who are already slim who are desperately trying to find a doctor to put them on it. Yeah. I think you can be both like sympathetic to, you know, going back to talking about our kind of like the generational history of these types of issues, right? You can be both sympathetic to the desire and the action while still, I don't know, viewing the entire system as really messed up in that it would encourage people to go to these lengths to try and be smaller, like forever be smaller, forever be smaller. It just... I also wonder, like, I'm always worried about externalities as well, which is, does it make it more difficult for the diabetics to get the drug? Because if so, that's actually, like, harm. So, yeah, it's causing real harm. So my understanding of this from researching it a little bit for my substack and for the episode is, yes, it does make them harder. There are delays. They expect it to be more difficult for everyone who's prescribed them to get the drugs through at least March. And that those difficulties are particularly true in the kind of coastal cities where a lot of the population who does not have an on-label or like who are – when you're in a place like New York or LA where there are a lot of people who are going to try and be on these drugs to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds to go from a very small size to a tiny size, the shortage for people who need them here as I understand it, is even more pronounced. But even in places where there's less of that culture, there's still a real shortage, is my understanding. Yeah. And I guess like there's also so many side effects too, and maybe like long-term effects of taking Ozempic. If you're not a diabetic, that those things are like really scary. And I mean, I took spironolactone for my acne, and that's like an off-label use as well. And I kind of did want to take it for forever because it was helping my acne so much. But my doctor was like, you can't take it forever. Like you just can't rely on this thing forever. What is that? What is, I, I understand you took it off label for acne, but what is that? I don't know what that. I think it's for heart, like blood pressure or like, okay. it's like a heart drug, but off label use prescribed by dermatologists is for like skin. It does like clear up your skin really well. It's like the step before Accutane essentially. Like Okay. Oh yeah. I've heard of people being on that before. Anyway. Yeah. So I guess I, you know, with all of this, 
I kind of want to talk about what does it even mean to like be well? Like what does it mean to feel healthy or positive about your body or like this sense of maybe alignment between your body and yourself? Yeah, I think wellness is to me wellness as an industry is very different from what being well actually means. Totally, totally. <laughs> Looking at you, Gwyneth Paltrow. No, Jay, I love Gwyneth, but yes. But I think that if we're looking at like what wellness actually means, I think that to me personally, being well means reaching a sort of baseline level of physical mental, emotional, like all over health in every different category is necessary for wellness. And then finding the correct balance between those things is being like truly well, like in terms of physicality, you know, or actually I want to get away from the body thing. So like, you know, you can't have like a severe drinking problem and be like really really well. And that's, there's no shame in being unwell. I'm extremely unwell. Um, (laughs) Not in terms of, I don't have a drinking problem, but there's a lot about me that is not fucking well. So it's no, no value judgment, (laughs) but like you can't have like a bad problem with alcohol and be well. But if you don't have a problem with alcohol and like, you know, the things we consume, like mind altering substances, whatever, finding the right balance of using those within and exercise and therapy and all of that stuff. I think it's like you have to reach whatever level and then find the balance once all of your sort of factors are at that level, right? Like I think it's possible to be unwell from too much therapy. Like I think that can make you crazy too. No, absolutely. And I do think, you know, it's hard to really know what wellness looks like for everyone because oftentimes I'll think, oh, wellness looks a certain way or is a certain way and, you know, I'll get to whatever goal. And this is like true for, I don't know, career stuff. It's true for like relationship stuff. It's true for everything where like I feel like, oh, if my life just looks like this, if I just look like this, then I will be well. And that's like never really the case. It like never ends up that way. So then it kind of begs the question of like, I try to be more like action oriented about it now. Like, oh, I want to be able to, I don't know, like I do a lot of yoga. So like do certain poses, like that's my goal. And that's a way to like channel this like desire in a way that's a bit more like skills based maybe and less so aesthetic based, even though I do know at the back of my head, I am probably thinking about the aesthetics of it as well. Yeah, I also think it's a balance. There's nothing, in my opinion, your physicality and the way you look shouldn't be like your only priority or your top priority. But I don't think that there's anything wrong with caring about the aesthetic of your appearance. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with like makeup and hairstyle and body and dress and stuff. I think, you know, the thing is, the way we're perceived by the world is like, unless somebody is blind, the way people like literally see us with their eyes is their first impression. And it's something that we can control. And that's not even always, it doesn't always have to do with something that's that's heavy, like body image. You know, it has to do with like, if you wear a certain 
kind of dress. If you're wearing like a dress that's like a sort of long floral patterned cotton dress, that sort of communicates that you're one kind of person. If you're wearing like a black leather mini dress, and it's not, I shouldn't have said a a kind of person. I mean that we can use our clothes and our hair and our appearance to communicate to people sort of who we are and how we think of ourselves, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that totally does. And I think that kind of gets at the core of it, right? Like you want your body and your dress and your style and like your outward appearance should be an expression of you, like you at your truest, you at what you want to say to the world. But I think oftentimes we let the physicality of it try to, I don't know, I guess cart before the horse, right? Like we want the outside to lead the inside when in fact it should be the other way around. Like everything that we're putting out there in the world should come from within and then like it's an expression. Yes. And I think that also we as a society, my sort of, I don't know if it's my final note, but (laughs) one of my final notes is like as a society, I was just talking about clothing and makeup and hairstyle. And those are all things that are very, very much within our control in the moment. And I don't mean like you should judge people for their clothing, but I mean that I think that it would be helpful if like for ourselves, it's like focus on the things that are within your control. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 I don't know. Whereas your body size like is not really as in your control. I don't, I just can't even speak about this, I suppose, but I hope you understood what I was saying. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying because there are things within our control a lot more and like channeling our energies towards things that are more controllable. I mean, this goes for anything, right? Even like, you know, if something is happening in a friendship or a relationship, like we talked about being able to meet people where they are and like controlling for what we can, but not trying to control other people. And I think sometimes like controlling your body weight, it can feel like, within our control when actually it's like a lot of genetics, a lot of things that are outside of our control. So focusing on things that we can actually have like tangible impact in and that do make us feel better, that is probably a better allocation of our attention, right? Totally. I don't know. It's just, it's heavy. It's a lifelong battle and it's difficult because there's so much in society, no matter how much positive stuff about body image we put out and how far of these movements have come, there's still so much judgment whenever you're outside of this very thin line of metaphorically and literally this thin line of what's acceptable. And it's tough. I don't know. I feel feel for every woman and men, I guess. Yeah, I think especially, you know, in the gay community, there's kind of like this idea of like- That's a very good point. Yeah, the like super like a gay aesthetic. And if you don't fit into that, like, I don't know, some days I'd be like, that would be such an interesting thing to go into is like, I see my friends grinders and like the amount of emphasis on physicality there and like certain types of physicality is like, insane. And that probably is just as harmful, if not more than I don't know, it's just like, we're all just trapped in our bodies to a certain extent. And like, what do we do about that? It's tough. If you guys know, tell us. Yeah, seriously. So this was really a lot of, I don't know, I hope it helped you think through some things. But I do think at the end of the day, there's no easy answer. And there's no like panacea for this 
trapped in your body issue. Like we just all are and maybe talking about it and trying to deal with it day by day is the as much as we can do. And like, again, going into what's in our control and what's out of our control, like we can't change society, but we can have these conversations and hopefully like, you know, change the little things that we can. You have a body, you are a spirit. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for joining us this time and, you know, follow us on our socials. They'll be in the show notes. As well as, you know, if you enjoyed this, share it with a friend, rate, review, subscribe. We really, really appreciate it. And we can't wait to talk to you next week. And if you didn't enjoy it, do not rate or review. <laughs> yeah, just don't. Just, just don't. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, guys. Thank you. <laughs>